All right, what's going on, everyone? This is Jake, and this week's episode of the Land Podcast is actually a section of the podcast for Trail Cam Radio that will be live tomorrow. And this is with Mark Kenyon. Mark Kenyon runs Wired to Hunt and works with Meat Eater. And honestly, I've listened to Mark over the years for a long time. And what we did is we basically put him through his own hunting gauntlet that he does on his podcast um, that he's done the last two years. And so this section of the conversation is about the Back 40 Project, his checklist of what he needed in order to buy this piece of ground, how he found it, and everything else that went along with it, and how he's improved it as well. So pretty fun conversation. This is a shorter episode, but I hope you guys enjoy it. And if you want to hear the full conversation, head over to Trail Cam Radio tomorrow morning and you can catch the full episode. So we hope you guys enjoy it. Let's go ahead and get right into it. Here we go. This instant. Great. Yeah. What what was something that surprised you after you scooped up that project and you worked on it for two years? Was it easier or harder than what you thought to have an opportunity to have at a you know, a mature Michigan bucking chair. It was definitely harder in year one than I expected. It was harder to find a place. First off, I, I thought I'd always thought that, man, as soon as you, as soon as I had the money to buy a little farm, it'd be a piece of cake to get the place you want. And I just thought those things were growing on trees or something, but we finally had the ability to like find a farm we wanted to buy for this project. And I had a really hard time finding anything that checked the boxes I was looking for. So that was the first thing that surprised me. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, you know, I'd done a little bit of habitat improvement on a couple of permission properties. I dabbled in it and been able to do some little food plots and stuff, but I never really had the ability to do like large scale stuff and like have a blank canvas. And with the back 40, all of a sudden I had that and I had, you know, people to help me a little bit and I had some resources to do stuff. And A, it was just intimidating a little bit. Like once anything is possible, how do you actually choose what to actually focus on and where do you put your time and energy right away? All those things were just more difficult than I thought. And finally, it was just harder to pull off. Just, there were so many things that failed. There were so many things I tried and didn't work out. There was so much equipment that gave me a hard time. So everything in year one, I think, surprised me. I thought like simple things like putting a damn food plot and deer will come out and eating it. Like that's the kind of simple thing that usually works. And I couldn't even get that to work in the first year. <laughs> so year one surprised me a lot in that regard. Year two surprised me on the other side, which was how quickly you can change things when you do get it right. And so year two, I I changed like our program dramatically, did it a lot different, tried to take everything that failed the first year and tried to fix it, tried to try to change a lot and learn a lot from that first year. And in one year with that set of changes, you know, we saw a night and day difference in the number of deer in general that's, that hung out on the property, the number of, you know, relatively mature bucks that were spending time on the property, the amount of daylight activity. I mean, it was just, it was really a light switch event. And well, so, yeah. What were some of those changes that you did that made so much of a difference? Yeah. I think a big one was adding diversity structure and cover to the old fields. So the back 40 is like 50%, like a swamp that runs through the middle. And then the other 50% of the property was old ag fields, which when we bought the farm, were just overgrown in uh, mare's tail, which is like a invasive weed that once fall arrives and the leaves come down, they're just like beanstalks with no, nothing, no food, no cover, nothing. So it was like a, a wasteland across 30 acres of our property that I found in year one, the deer hardly ever wanted to touch at all. 
So in year two, I needed to find a way to visually break that up. I couldn't have a bunch of eight acre fields that nothing would cross because that was most of our property, right? So I needed to add visual structure and cover that would make deer feel safe out there that would make deer move around in there that would make deer even maybe bed in some of those spots. And then I wanted to add diversity to it as well. So that there was also, you know, food value out there. So it was also, you know, deer and all wildlife crave diversity. They want a lot of different options and it was a desert of the same in year one. So in year two, we planted strips of sorghum and Egyptian wheat throughout a number of different parts of these fields to visually break it up like big walls of stuff that basically looks like corn. We put walls of corn kind of, compartmentalized what was an eight acre field all of a sudden into little like one acre sections that no deer could see out of. So they would feel like they're in a small opening versus a really big opening. And then all of a sudden we added, you know, just like a deer might like to follow a a fence row because they like to follow edges. Well, now we added all this edge inside the field. We add all this structure that deer could bed next to or stand next to and feel safe. And then we also used herbicide to try to knock out as much of that mare's tail as we could in the spring and allow whatever's native there to grow back. Mm. And so we got all this native diversity that came out. So I went from just mare's tail to now like I don't know, 15 different species of all kinds of stuff. So it was thicker. It was more food. There's more cover value. We planted some switchgrass in there too, to provide kind of a base of cover. So those fields were just transformed. And then we added food as well in food plots. So in year one, my food plot plan was let's have these like tiny little micro plots that are in the middle of these fields, like as far away from the edges as possible, because I was very paranoid about getting in and out without spooking deer. And I was worried if I make these food plots too big, there's no way we'll be able to get in and out. We're just going to be spooking deer all the time. And I came into it with this assumption that this property would be like other Southern Michigan places I hunt with just like tons of deer. So I was assuming like there'll be 20, 30 deer coming out and feeding in these plots. And so I had to make them really small because of that. Well, in year one, we saw like no deer. And we never had issues spooking deer out of this food plots because nothing was ever out there. And we had no reason for deer to spend time on ours is what it started to feel like. So in year two, I almost, I think we 3X'd the size of our food that we added, maybe a little bit more than that, and used the screening cover and the improved field to, to seclude them. So it still felt kind of secluded. And I still had somewhat stealthy ways to get in and out and around those without spooking deer but much, much bigger food sources in there. And with those two things together, all of a sudden, a lot more deer activity in there. And they still stayed in the daylight and still used it. We're able to, you know, carefully, we had to get in and out carefully and we did not hunt a lot, but we had a reason for those deer to spend time. They had to cover the structure and now great food and enough of it to, for this to all of a sudden be like, oh, hey, this is like a, this is a good spot to be. And mm-hmm. that, that seemed to make a difference too. Interesting. And real, real quick, what were some of the boxes on that checklist when you were looking to find this piece? Yeah. So probably the biggest thing was that I wanted some kind of sanctuary. At least what I found in Michigan is that if you want to have a chance at mature bucks on a consistent basis, there's got to be some kind of sanctuary, some kind of reservoir where these bucks can make it past their first year or two. The farms that I've hunted in the past that are just like normal farmland with some timber, some crops, and guys everywhere, it's year and a half olds, it's two and a half year olds. It's very, very hard to find anything older than that. But if you can find a property where there's a big nasty swamp or where there's a nature conservancy property on one side that nobody's allowed to hunt or a Girl Scout camp or something, like those spots 
you've got a reason and a way that a buck could make it through a couple of gun seasons. So mm-hmm. I had to have something like that. That was the number one. You got to have a, a way that these bucks, there's got to be like a superpower that's going to allow this buck to survive. And so in this case, there was this big swamp system. Love me a big swamp system. Those bucks can burrow down in those places and, and survive a gun season or two. So that was a big one. Another one was, uh, I just, you know, you're looking for a basic set of habitat criteria that would appeal to deer and deer hunting. So I wanted diversity in terrain. I didn't want 60 acres of just timber. I didn't want 60 acres of just field. I wanted a mix. So this property checked that box really nicely because it had the swamp, it had field, it had some timber and some fence row. So it gave us a, a nice set of options when it came to hunting and to you know improving habitat because that was something coming into it like we wanted to have something we could, could do some interesting new things with and having diverse options certainly did that and then a third really important thing was that i was looking for the right neighborhood so i was trying to find in addition to some kind of sanctuary thing i was also looking for an area where i thought there would be other like-minded people because again i was hoping that you know we could have some better deer hunting some quality deer hunting and In Michigan, that's not a guaranteed thing everywhere. So you need to find these little micro neighborhoods of people who are into that. So I did a lot of looking at like QDM co-op maps and looking uh, and talking to folks in the area. I did some like social media stalking and stuff, like even like looking up neighbors on Facebook and trying to like look at the deer they're killing, the pictures they're posting, that kind of stuff. And so I was able to find a spot where there was, there was a QDM co-op in the area there was a couple people where I talked to a friend of a friend and they said, well, actually this guy, I know that guy's name. He manages for such and such. And so I was able to find that kind of deal. And I, I'd done that in a number of the other properties we'd looked for. And I found a couple of these other neighborhoods that would be great or would be promising, I guess. This one was just the one that all the pieces lined up. Interesting. So how long, How if you had to quantify it, how long did it take to actually find this farm? It was probably four months. We I started looking, I think, in January, and we didn't close on that farm till it was like the last day of April or first day of May or something like that. And I think I walked, if I remember right, I think I walked 13 or 14 different properties. I walked in person. Mm-hmm. And then I can't, I mean, dozens of more that I looked, you know, studied online and looked at maps and pictures and talked to people about and all that kind of stuff. There was one farm I wanted to put an offer in on that got like pulled out from underneath us at the last moment. So that was like that one almost happened. But that day, it, it was funny. That day, I was trying to put an offer on this one farm. And then the realtor got back to me and said, oh, yeah, this other guy did it already. And in my frustration of that moment, I was so pissed. And it's like April. I'm like, God, we've lost our whole spring. This is never going to happen. I just need to go for a drive. And so I had had a list of properties that were like C-level options that I wasn't even going to go visit. But I just put on my list anyways. And I'm upset. And I thought, ah. I'll just drive out to this property that I don't even, this isn't going to be any good, but I don't know. I just want to go walk a property and maybe it'll surprise me. And so when I drove out to go look at that property and just kind of air out my frustration, I see that there's a for sale sign on the neighboring property. Mm. And I pull that up and that had not showed up on any of the internet databases. It hadn't showed up in any of my searches. I pull up Onyx and look at that one. I'm like, huh, <laughs> this one this one's got something going for it. And turns out it was, it was the back 40. So a little bit of a serendipity there. Yeah. Was it, was it just listed by like a local brokerage that didn't have it fed through all the syndications? Yeah. They did the absolute worst job marketing it ever. <laughs> ever. I mean, horrible. It was, uh-huh. we ended up finding like they had a listing for it on like their brokerage website. 
No, and sad. there was one picture of it in one sentence, like good hunting or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if these guys had an ounce of sense, they could have marketed <laughs> the heck out of this property, positioned it as a recreational deer hunting property and probably sold it for three times what we bought it for. Sure. Um, so these poor guys didn't know what they had. <laughs> that seems to happen. I mean, that that's, that story seems to to follow quite a bit. The, pro- mm-hmm. the property getting swept out underneath you right before it. And then obviously finding a, a screaming deal after doing a lot of homework. All right, there you guys have it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Land Podcast. As always, written reviews are the fuel of this podcast. A written review would go a long way, so we certainly would appreciate that. Also, just want to say thank you to everyone that has signed up for the resource sign up in the link tree below. And we're going to be having an industry expert on the show here next week, so stay tuned for that. And once again, if you want to catch the full conversation here with Mark, head over to Trail Cam Radio tomorrow morning. I want to say it goes live at 5 a.m. Central Standard Time on Tuesday, August 24th. So we hope you guys enjoyed it. This past weekend, I hung a couple trail cameras, uh, more than a couple, hung about five trail cameras, two stands on a new piece of ground so it's just a ton of fun to get out there and hopefully you guys are doing the same season is right around the corner and i'm eagerly checking cell cameras every chance i get so anyhow until next time see you guys thanks